0: Hello and welcome to UCC Translational Medicine Society's radio show and podcast, Narrowing the Void. This show aims to facilitate student learning and foster student engagement in translational medical research by talking to leading experts in the fields of medical research and basic science. My name is Mark Vesey and I am joined with my co-host Brian Curtin. Today we are joined by Dr. Cahill McCarthy. Cahill McCarthy is a lecturer in pharmacology and therapeutics in UCC. Cahill graduated from UCC with a BSc in microbiology and undertook further PhD studies in vascular biology in the Dublin Institute of Technology, investigating the pathways modulating placental insufficiency in preeclampsia and IUGR. Cahill has a particular interest in the field of obstetrics, focusing on mitochondrial dysfunction and its role in diseases such as preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. Cahill, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I suppose to start us off, Castle, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing in
1: UCC? Sure. So as you as you mentioned, I my primary role, I guess, is I am a lecturer in pharmacology and therapeutics on the medical and health science program, and I teach a little bit on the pharmacy and gem program. And then I have a research group uh, that is based in Western Gate and had a co-location up in the CUH our CUMH hospital, where we look at obstetric research, I guess, from a translation perspective. So we have we're very fortunate to work with clinical colleagues in the CUMH so we have access to a number of different uh, biological samples from patients who are very kind to participate in the studies that we can that we conduct. Um, the areas that I work in predominantly I've worked in pre for the last perhaps 10 years and now we've moved a little bit more towards looking at gestational diabetes so there is a kind of interaction between those, those two pregnancy complications and we're equally kind of moving a little bit now in terms of pre work looking at the outcomes in the baby in particular kind of neurodevelopmental outcomes in the baby uh, from those who've had a preeclamptic pregnancy essentially
2: okay. and just for some of our listeners Carl, who perhaps wouldn't be familiar with those terms um, Mm. preeclampsia and gestational diabetes could you just um, break those down for us i can indeed so preeclampsia is
1: a condition that develops around the 20th week of pregnancy that's when it's primarily diagnosed and it essentially means that mothers with preeclampsia have high blood pressure they may have protein in their urine And in terms of the impact for the baby, it often means that the baby may have to be delivered early. So the kind of the environment that the baby is growing in, so the the kind of the placental environment, the placenta isn't functioning correctly. So as a result, the baby isn't getting nutrients, oxygen, so forth, the environment may be a little bit toxic to the baby. So often the obstetricians have to decide how long to pursue pregnancy and whether it's more beneficial to deliver the baby early which often means that babies end up in the neonatal intensive care, care unit for a little bit of time. Um, uh, and then gestational diabetes is one of the newer areas that we worked in because we've seen an, an increase in its incidence in the last maybe 10 years or so. Uh, and that's where the pregnant woman develops diabetes during pregnancy. So they're not, they don't have diabetes prior to pregnancy and it develops during pregnancy. And then it often resolves uh, once uh, pregnancy ends and the baby is delivered. So they're kind of two slightly di- different conditions. But they can occur together. So sometimes when we're preeclampsia, they can also suffer with gestational diabetes. And how did you get
0: specifically interested in preeclampsia and gestational diabetes?
1: I did my PhD in a, a slightly different pregnancy complication. So I did my PhD in a condition called interuterine growth restrictions. That's where the babies are smaller than anticipated. Uh, so they've essentially, the placenta hasn't developed. Properly, so it's a slightly different condition to preeclampsy, but sometimes you see lots of IUGR occurring with preeclampsy. And I did it for my PhD, and there was no specific reason why I picked obstetric research. I was really interested in picking a PhD where we would have a clinical investment, so there'd be an opportunity to kind of interact with clinicians and more towards, I guess, the medical side of things is what I was interested in. And that opportunity came up, so I worked with clinicians in the National Maternity Hospital in Dublin, and from there, we worked with colleagues in London to do some transcriptomic work, uh, and that's kind of where the interest started uh, in terms of... So there was no, you know, I guess uh, there was no great interest in obstetric research when I started. It was more around the area of conducting research that was kind of clinically focused, essentially. Uh, and then when you get into clinic obstetric research, you realise that there's lots of scope to do really important research that wasn't necessarily always funded because it's not one of those kind of glamorous research areas that got lots of funding. So from that perspective it was really important to kind of pursue that in greater detail essentially. It kind of sounds like you've always wanted to translate your research findings mm. to a clinical application, would that be right? That Absolutely, so I guess for my PhD we did a lot of clinical work so we had access to clinical samples. I used to uh, be on site in the maternity hospital and we used to collect placental tissue samples which was uh, a little bit I guess not shocking isn't the right word to use, but it was an eye opening experience I'd never seen the placenta before I'd never worked with one. We were very familiar in a in i guess in a in a laboratory setting you're very familiar with working with samples that are coming out of a freezer so you're used to working with something that is at a certain degree you're handling a human sample so it's warm, which is an unusual sensation when you when you first experience it but it was it was a brilliant experience in terms of you got to interact with patients, recruit patients. They were very, you know, they were very willing to dedicate their time to the project. Um, so from that aspect, being on site, I think as well in the hospital environment, kind of increases your interest in translation research because you get to interact with clinicians, you get their input, you get the patients' input. So that kind of all feeds back into your own
2: research as well. It kind of drives you, I think, a little bit more perhaps as well. And just on that point, uh, Carl, I guess our show is all about narrowing the void between bench to bedside Mm. I guess that's to say translational medicine is all about promoting a higher level of collaboration and interaction between the scientists carrying out the research the clinicians treating those patients afflicted by the disease and the patients themselves so you've just touched on it there briefly but Mm. could you tell us a bit more about how this translational medicine approach has been evident in your career so far
1: Absolutely, so I guess during the PhD we got to interact with patients and we got biological samples from patients and we work with clinicians and then it's it's then you kind of go back to the lab essentially with those samples and try and tease out what's causing the disease so I guess my main interest is trying to identify what causes the disease but more importantly because I work in pharmacology is to identify if we can treat the disease more effectively so for pre-eclampsia is actual no specific treatment for the condition so it's kind of one of those it's what we call a clinical unmet unmet need. There is no, you can treat the pregnant woman with antihypertensis, but that's really to reduce their blood pressure as opposed to targeting the placenta, which drives the disease. So what we're trying to, I guess, investigate in our work is from a bench perspective initially is to tease out a little bit about more about what the disease is, what causes it and how we can treat that. And then you can take that back to the clinic eventually. So you have to go through preclinical models. Well, you can discuss that with clinicians So they That's what I used to, often when I used to be based in the hospital, I used to go to Grand Rounds meetings at eight o'clock in the morning, on a Friday morning, where it was purely for clinicians, but I used to sit in because you get a much better perspective in terms of, you know, the types of conditions they see in the clinic, what they struggle with, you know, where the gaps are in terms of being able to improve the clinical care that they can deliver. And as a scientist then you can figure out where do you fit in that so that's kind of that kind of opens your eyes a little bit in terms of you know how you can direct your research where the gaps are and then essentially apply for funding and then you get equally opportunity when you work in and i spent a lot of time working on clinical sites that you get to interact with patients so they give you their feedback in terms of if we were designing a study we asked them you know is it is it a lot of hassle if we'd asked you for an extra blood sample so they're often get their blood pressure measured, they're giving blood samples for clinical care, Is it imp- would it be a burden if we asked them could we get an extra blood sample for research purposes that we would work on in the lab? And they're all very, very willing, I must say. Um, we've never had a case where people generally don't participate in studies. I'm often shocked by the amount of time they have to spend on a clinical site and yet they're very willing to, to help out from a research perspective. That's super.
0: Um, and just it's been really interesting when we've been talking to guests over the range of podcasts we've done so far. Cotill, what has been a challenge that you've faced throughout your career?
1: A challenge? Funding, I guess, is probably what everybody tells you. Um, it is important to get funding because we can't essentially do research without getting funding. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have, to get funding from the Health Research Board for some of the work that I do. That can be a challenge. Um, I guess during the pandemic, it was getting access to sites, which is a unique challenge over the last two years, but we've been fortunate enough that we have been able to get access to sites. Um, If you have a a very willing clinical colleague, it helps a lot. They're incredibly busy, but they're equally are very willing to help and collaborate with scientists. So that can be the first point is to approach a clinician, develop that relationship with them. Approaching patients. It's equally recruiting patients is a skill set in itself that you kind of need to learn initially when you're starting a translational project. It's slightly different. So the PhD students that work in my group, they recruit patients. So they do a little bit of both. They get to see everything. So they're recruiting patients in the clinical site. They often end up in the uh, theatre to collect samples and then they get to come back to the lab. So they get to see I guess all aspects of translational research, but I guess funding would probably the biggest stumbling block initially.
0: Yeah, um, I think it, it's really interesting to hear the challenges that you know, um, you know, our lecturers and l- experts in the field face because we often see them as you know, all smooth sailing and you know, mm-hmm. it's good to re- be reminded that it's not all as easy it l- as it looks as they Unfortunately say. Unfortunately not, no
2: it isn't. And just in terms of I guess your, your dual responsibility here in UCC Cahill as a principal investigator and a lecturer. Um, could you tell us about I think as students we're always interested to see or to hear what, like, how do you juggle both the research and the academic side of things in terms of work-life balance it takes a little bit of time to get used to I think when you come
1: from let's say doing lots of research and you're a postdoctor and then you're maybe a research fellow and then you get an academic position where your primary role is, is to teach it takes a little bit of time to transition from that to the lecturing post and you kind of, as a, as a, as a postdoc, you're consumed by the lab and that's what your main focus is. So sometimes it's even a mind shift to kind of switch to the teaching role, trying to balance the two is a challenge. Um, if you have a research team, it's a little bit easier. So they can, they, they essentially can complete some of the research. Generally you end up trying to fit both in. You have to fit both in. Um, it takes a little bit of time. It it takes a little bit of time to get used to it. Um, Essentially, if you manage your time relatively well, which equally is a skill in itself to try and uh, develop, um, you have meetings with your research group at least once, twice a week, just to touch base. Uh, A lot of the time we're teaching. Um, But it's nice because you can feed your research into your lectures as well. So that's what I've kind of found that a lot of the time, you know, some of the pharmacology books that I teach and and we use as resources, there isn't a huge amount in terms of pediatric pharmacology, obstetric pharmacology, or even introducing, you know, obstetric research as well. You know, people are very familiar with other areas of research. So it's nice to get the opportunity when we teach to introduce that to students as well to kind of make them a little bit more aware of that. So that's where you can kind of, it's enjoyable to be able to incorporate both together. And you mentioned there your research team. Mm. What would your
0: research team look like or, you know, who is it built up of?
1: It is built up of, at the minute we have three PhD students, two, there's a postdoc, we take summer students, we have Erasmus students. Um, I kind of, I like the idea that they can, students can come and join and just see what the experience is like. And more often than not, even when we have summer students and Erasmus students, we try and expose them to the clinical side as much as possible so they can actually see, because sometimes they see a sample. and they don't really understand where the sample comes from. So we try and incorporate that into their experience when they work with us as well. So there's three PhD students, two work. One works on preeclampsia, one works on gestational diabetes. The postdoc works across both. And then the other PhD student is in a kind of a newer area. So we're looking at, the, I guess, the neurodevelopmental outcomes in babies whose moms had preeclampsia so we're looking at that kind of at a very early stage at the minute um, so that's what the other postdoc in the group works on and that's a collaboration that we have with the, the Department of Anatomy uh, and Neuroscience in UCC so it's it's nice, it's a new area for myself to, to work in
2: as well. And just building on that call, uh, you were just telling us off air about how when you moved from uh, CUMH into Western Gateway Building that there was a lot more well, I guess we were previously speaking about the multidisciplinary interaction between clinicians and researchers. But could you tell us about the interdisciplinary collaboration between mm. researchers who might be in completely contrasting fields, but then w- mm. would there be collaboration and insights from, I guess, different perspectives?
1: Absolutely. So like, when you work in the clinical side. Sometimes you forget that UCC exists, even though you are part of UCC, you're very focused on the on the clinical site and that's kind of where your main focus is. And then when I moved to Western Gate, you get introduced to different people in different departments. Sometimes it's in the coffee shop. Sometimes you're just introduced to them and they have common research areas or they'll know about your research and you'll know about their research and you can kind of get common themes. So that's essentially how the neurodevelopmental work began, it was a conversation with Professor Joe O'Keefe that he had previously done a little bit of work in the hospital. We were kind of keen to continue it. Uh, and that's what we we applied for funding. We were, we were thankfully successful to get funding for a PhD student. Um, and then there are other areas where we're, we collaborate a little bit with the Department of Neuroscience and Anatomy more so, um, purely because we have that connection, but it's I think when you're based in the Western Gate, there's lots of different departments, there's lots of different disciplines. It's easy to kind of interact. People are very engaged. People always want to collaborate. It's, it's, it's a real collaborative space. Um, it's finding the time and the funding to, to build on those collaborations. So often they'll start as, you know, maybe a summer student. You'll have an interesting idea. You'll collaborate with someone. It'll be a summer project and then you kind of take it from there and see if you can follow it through and get funding to support a PhD student out of it. And Carl, who or what inspires you? That's a difficult question. Um, I think from a research perspective, you're always inspired by people that actually contribute to I know it sounds really, I guess, cheesy, but people who contribute to our research projects because, you know, we often get surveys to fill in and leaflets for, and I'm not brilliant at doing that. So I'm always stunned and inspired by people that actually take the time to participate in the work because essentially when we recruit patients, they're not going to necessarily benefit from... The research that we're doing now because often it can take maybe five ten years before you see the full output of your research so they're essentially participating in a study that would be beneficial to women five ten years time that they may never meet they don't actually know and they're all very keen to participate uh, purely to improve outcomes for future generations um of women
2: yeah that, that sort of humility and i guess um self-sacrifice is it's brilliant to see and i guess we were just talking off air as well about how, um, I guess, bringing a, a, a drug to market. I, I think um, a lot of students would be shocked or surprised if to hear just how long the road uh, it takes to get a drug mm-hmm. from bench to bedside. Could you tell us a bit about that? I can. It, it
1: Generally, it takes about, I guess, 10 years perhaps, by the time it goes through clinical... By the time it goes from a, an idea in the lab to moving it into, let's say, a preclinical model uh, and then going through different phases of clinical trial and then getting regulatory approval uh, and then production costs and getting it at a price point that can be applicable to everyone. Uh, it can often take 10 years to do it. And I guess in the area that we work in, it's slightly more challenging in terms of that if we're designing a therapeutic or a drug for, a pre, for a, a, uh, an obstetric research problem, we have to consider both the effect on the mother but equally the impact that that may have on the baby so it's a slightly more challenging environment but equally one that we don't want to shy away from that we want to pursue because essentially it's a disease that can't be treated Um, and from that reason alone it kind of drives you to keep going and and do more research on it. And what are some of the
0: major changes in research or in translational medicine that you've kind of observed over your career so far
1: since you started Colt? I think the engagement with clinical colleagues, I think initially it, it was a little bit maybe more sporadic. I think there's a lot more um, collaborations now between clinicians and I guess what we call bench scientists. I think that maybe wasn't always the case previously. I think it's, it's, it's a really important area because you get their perspective and then you can feed into their perspective as well. So I think that's the benefit of it. I think, you know, I guess finding a clinical colleague, they having the time to do this, they all... Would love to get into research, but obviously their clinical time is very consuming. So, I think those type of partnerships, and I know there's different kind of funding streams that are now being developed by UCC to fund those type of partnerships. And I think those kind of collaborations are really, really important in terms of moving translational research forward. Because often projects are done in isolation and they never have a clinical impact. So the the student gets a PhD, and you know the PI may get more funding to build on that. But you'd like to think that you would be able to take it to a clinical setting and have a clinical impact. Um, So I think those partnerships between clinicians and scientists are, I guess, what we've seen a growth in in the last maybe 10 years or so. And just touching more on
0: that uh, kind of collaboration between researchers and scientists and clinicians, you know, how would that feed into the importance of networking as students and as, you know, PhD students and postdocs and, you know, so on?
1: Mm. I think it's important for, like, for PhD students and postdocs, it's important that they... I guess, engage with and, you know, contact some. if you're interested in doing a PhD, get in touch with your PI or a PI that you have an area that they're interested in. Um, They often have bigger networks that students can benefit from as well. So for example, a lot of the networks that we would have with different clinicians and different, because you often end up at conferences, you meet different people at conferences, they will have space in their lab, they'll be interested in taking PhD students, undergrads, a little bit less, but there is opportunities there and you'll only really get those opportunities if you approach your PI or clinician, equally for medical students, you know, to do research projects. they approach a clinician, they may be a scientist that they collaborate with that you have a greater opportunity to equally. It's like a passport. Like we talk about PhDs, they're essentially like a passport for you. So once you do a PhD, you have the opportunity then to visit other labs everywhere else in the world to try a little bit of research. And that's, I think, one of the benefits of it. So I've done a little bit of work in London. We did a little bit of work in Mississippi. You get to visit labs for two or three months. You see a completely different lab environment. Uh, you see how the clinical setups look like there versus what they are here in Cork. Uh, and you kind of learn from that and you can see what improvements you can make when you get back as well. So it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of one of the, the more beneficial and one of the more enjoyable parts of doing research is that type of collaboration and those type of opportunities.
2: And for some of our students listening who might be considering doing uh, further studies abroad, could you tell mm-hmm. us a bit more about, um, I guess, some of the other learnings and, and, and values in, in going abroad and putting yourself outside your comfort zone like that?
1: It's. Different labs work very differently. So I've, I literally worked for maybe two months in Mississippi because we were interested in developing a preclinical model for preeclampsia. We didn't have it here in Cork. Um, when we wanted to develop the drug that we were interested in, so we'd done lots of lab work, but we, didn't, we wanted to move it into a preclinical model that would be relevant. The only people that were doing it at the time were in Mississippi. So through collaboration uh, with a clinical colleague, we got to, to visit... Uh, and train in a preclinical model, and you get the exposure. You get to go to a different country, which is great. You get to experience what life is like overseas. Um, you get to work in different environments, but you also learn a technique that then you bring back to UCC. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits as well is that you get a lot of training abroad. That some opportunities that maybe aren't available in UCC, you can bring those back uh, if you come back to UCC. Um, equally, you get to live in a different country, which is which is nice too for a while, a sunnier country, hopefully. <laughs> And Cahill, what has been the highlight of your career so far? I guess one of the highlights is to actually develop your own research. I mean, you kind of go from a PhD and a postdoc and it's nice to be able to develop your own research team and then give opportunities for other students to work with you and work in an area and get their own PhDs. I think that's one of the the nicer elements of it. I mean, it is lovely to be able to do research and essentially develop a new drug, but it equally is the people that you work with. So I think they're very important too. That you know your research team. Like when I say I do research, I don't really have a huge amount of time to do to go into the lab and do research. It really is the PhD students and postdocs that do the research, um, and it's nice to be able to build your team from that perspective. Uh, that's what I. That's kind of one of the the highlights I find.
2: And in navigating the pandemic, then which. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> unfortunately, we're still not at the end of it, but we we are probably at, near the end of the tunnel. But could you tell us some of the changes that that enforced on your research team and how ye, is there anything that you've learned from that period from when COVID brought everything shut it shut down and mm. isolation and lockdowns? Could you tell us any learnings from that? Yeah, it was.
1: I guess it was a challenge essentially because. We had two sites where we were where access was restricted. So essentially, it was restricted for a little while in UCC on in the western gate, and then obviously the clinical sites uh, access was was restricted for a slightly longer period of time. So because we recruit patients, it had an impact on that as well. Um, in terms of learnings, I guess we're more efficient in terms of how we do stuff now. Um, I'm trying to think what it, it's we. We engage a little bit more, I guess, with clinicians that so we have a little bit more time in terms of um, trying to manage your time a little bit better when you get meetings with them because everyone, and now I guess one of the other things is that if you can't get on site, we're also used to using Teams now that sometimes that's an easier platform to get a 10 minute meeting with a clinician as opposed to trying to, you know, locate them in a hospital when they're busy, particularly, I guess, with the, with the obst- obstetricians we work with because babies are delivered all hours of the day and night trying to say that you'll meet someone at two o'clock on a Tuesday. You know, in theory, that sounds great, but if a baby has been delivered at that time, they can't make that meeting. So sometimes I think the online platform has helped a little bit in that sense that we can just, you know, send them a message. Are you free for 10 minutes? Jump on Teams or Zoom or whatever it is. And you can have a quick conversation like that. So I think we kind of manage our time a little bit better. Um, and it's a little bit easier, I think, for the clinicians as well to engage. There's definitely
0: a lot of uh, developments over the last two years that might mm. be seen as kind of hidden benefits, I suppose, mm. of the pandemic. Yeah. And Carl, are there any kind of areas of future development in translational medicine or kind of gaps uh, in the field that mm. you see need to be filled or addressed in the future?
1: I think one of the areas, I guess, from, where we, from the research we do is that what we're finding is, and it's something that's kind of come to light in the last five years, is that women with pre-eclampsia, for example, so it affects... The, the blood vessel and the vasculature in um, women who develop this disease. And it's actually the long-term outcome. So we, we would have known a little bit about the outcomes for the babies that are born with uh, of pregnancies that are complicated. But what we're actually realizing now is that there is equally an increased risk for mothers who've had this particular condition. So there is an increased risk that they may develop cardiovascular disease later in life, which is something that we hadn't really considered before. So there's kind of a, I guess crosstalk there between cardiovascular disease and this particular condition and it's kind of something that perhaps in future years maybe gps when when particular individuals presented their clinic with heart complications that it may be one of the questions that they could consider asking what was your pre even though you know it may be 20 years since they were pregnant it is something that i guess we're trying to get the general public and the gps in general to ask a little bit more about that be more a little bit aware of and we're trying to figure out why so why why are they at more risk you know what's going on is there something that we're missing that we're not aware of so trying to follow up um with these individuals that equally is something that work that is sometimes can be challenging is to do follow-up studies so you're you love to see you know you do your initial research project but sometimes you kind of need to see the effect five or ten years later so for example in the in the area we we're working with neurodevelopmental outcomes so we do some early lab bench stuff and you know the the man may have preeclampsia, and then the outcome on the baby, you won't really see that for five or 10 years. So it's nice to be able to do follow-up studies. Um, So that's kind of another space that we're interested in.
2: That's brilliant. yeah. And just to wrap up our our, our show then, Carl, we like to ask our guests, uh, what's one piece of advice that you would give the younger version of yourself that we, as college students, can all learn from? I think... When I was in UCC, we didn't
1: do anything like doing podcasts or anything like that. I think students are much more engaged and take more opportunities than we ever did. I think if there's something that you're interested in from a, a research perspective, ask. So when I, did, when I moved uh, to the CUMH site, I actually didn't know the clinician I was going to be working with. I literally knew of their work and I essentially was sending him an email going, I think this is something we should work on. <laughs> Multiple emails, I would say. Uh, I think this is something we should work on. The clinician equally didn't know me from a stranger in the street. And it was purely by just pursuing it and just sending an email. And that's how this kind of whole kind of, I guess the rest of what I've done in the last five or six years has kind of sprung from that. So it's take opportunities, don't be afraid to ask. And you know, most PI's lectures, they have time to answer emails. Um, If you don't ask, you won't find out. Um, So there's nothing lost really essentially determination and
0: resilience very important i imagine equally equally very very important super well thank you so much for joining us today cahill it's been a pleasure thank you very much thanks